The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Awesome. Well, we are, we are starting a new series this morning, as Gerard said, in the book of Philippians, and the plan is to spend the next 11 weeks or so looking at this really wonderful letter from the Apostle Paul. When we look at letters from the New Testament, uh, what we do, what we have is we get these little insights, these little glimpses into how, as a church, we ought to be like. And, and whether that's in the sustained exposition of the gospel in Romans or the, the Q&A section in 1 Corinthians, whether it is the exhortation to courage in 1 Peter, or whether it's the outright rebuke of Galatians, what we have in these New Testament letters is these, uh, is these examples and these commands for how we as a church ought to operate and live and function and treat one another and worship God. Philippians is no different, and, and probably the, the most unique contribution of Philippians uh, is the simple perspective that this is a church that has gone deep in its love for one another, and it has gone uh, generous and deep in its support for God's mission in the world. And it contains for us not only imperatives for how we, that we should obey, for how we should live, and how we should function as a church, it also just gives us an incredible example to, to look towards and see how can we actually be, be, be becoming and changing and growing as a church. And, and this is how we're going to approach much of this text, examining the example that we have in Paul and what we can infer from this church in Philippi and applying that to ourselves, both in what it has to say to encourage us and what it has to say to challenge us. Essentially, we're looking at Paul, we're looking at this letter that he wrote to the Philippians and saying, yes, what, what can we be aiming towards? What can, how can we be growing? You see, I think if we were to truly seek God's purposes for us as a church, we ought to not, not look too much further than God's purposes for us as individuals. See, if it is true that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then it could be said that the purpose of the church is simply to do that together, to glorify God together, to worship God together, to enjoy God together, to enjoy the gift of God's grace together. And I say that to emphasize the incredible hope that I have for the church. Many people bash the church, knock the church, mock it for any number of reasons or any number of its different shortcomings whether that's for, for present issues or historical issues. But I still have a deep hope that a community that trusts in the Lord, that truly loves one another, it loves one another because God loved us first, that community that seeks to walk together humbly before God and that seeks to put Jesus Christ at the absolute center of its being together, that church possesses God-ordained purpose and power that cannot be replicated without the gospel, and it cannot be replaced by anything at all. My hope for this series is that as we examine this personal letter, this very personal letter, we'll see within it all the reasons that we need to come again to the glorious message of the gospel with thankfulness and joy and ask God to once again bind us together in love. Let's pray, and then we'll get cracking into this. Father, we thank you for your word, and we, we ask this morning that you would instruct us in your word, form us in your word, Lord, 
Mold us into the image of Jesus Christ again, Lord, this morning. Holy Spirit, remind us of the things that we need to be reminded about. Commend to us the things that we need to hear. Encourage us, Lord, where we need to be encouraged. Lift us, lift us up, Holy Spirit. And Father, rebuke us where we need it. Convict us where we need it. May we each be teachable in these few moments that we have with your word. Help us to see this morning, Lord, how wonderful and beautiful and incredible Jesus Christ is. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. We can't possibly hope to understand the story of of this church, the story of Philippians, or understand this book, without fully understanding the origins of this church. It was the Apostle Paul who planted this church, and we can read about that in Acts chapter 16. And he went there, he went to Philippi, because he was beckoned there through a vision and a dream that he had from God to go to Macedonia. And so Paul, uh, with, with Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke, they arrive in Macedonia, they end up in Philippi, and they, end up, uh, they share the gospel, they go around the city administering for a while, and they end up just outside the city gates of Philippi, sharing the gospel with, uh, with a number of women by a river, and these women were God-fearers. One of these women was a, was, was a lady named Lydia, and, the, and God graciously opened Lydia's heart, to respond to the gospel. She heard the gospel, she believed it to be good news, and she became a Christian, the first ever Christian convert in Europe. And afterwards, she and her whole household were baptized. Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke continued to, to meet in Lydia's house, and they continued doing ministry. And then after some time, uh, Paul and Silas were actually thrown in prison. They were preaching the gospel in Philippi, and uh, they were causing a bit of an uproar because of that, and so they were thrown into prison. And that night when they were in prison, at around midnight, an earthquake struck, and the prison doors flung open, and the shackles that were on the prisoners' uh, ankles, ankles and wrists, all came off. And the, the prison guard, the, the jailer who was there, saw the prison doors open, assumed that the, the soldiers had all escaped, and so he drew his sword and was about to kill himself for the shame and dishonor of allowing his prisoners to go. But Paul called out to him and said, whoa, 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 take, take a moment, take a breather, we're all here, none of us have escaped, we're all here and we're okay. And so the Philippian jailer says he went in and he fell down at the feet of Paul and Silas, trembling. And then he took Paul and Silas, he escorted them out of the prison, and he he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he and his household believed in the Lord Jesus and were saved and were baptized. He took Paul and Silas home. He cleaned their wounds, he gave them a meal, and the next day the magistrates ordered the release of Paul and Silas and urged them to leave town. So Paul and Silas, they met again in Lydia's house. It seems to be the meeting place for this new gathering. They met together in Lydia's house, they prayed for the believers, they encouraged them, and then they went on their way. And those who remained, those believers who remained, became the church in Philippi, growing after they left. This is how the church got started in Philippi, with these unlikely people coming to faith and beginning to meet together. <clears throat> and it's important to have these personal stories of salvation in mind 
because this is a very personal letter. Paul, who is writing this from prison, he pours out his heart in love and joy and affection to these believers who held a very special place in his heart. Paul is writing this letter to express the love that he has for them, the deep affection that he has for them. And he's writing to them to encourage them to continue in their joy in Christ, to continue to be united to one another in faith. It begins with these words, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So a couple of things to mention. Paul, when he was writing this with Timothy, uh, the two of them were in prison in Rome. They had been in prison and then taken to Rome. And so this is the context of where he's writing from. He's writing with chains on his wrists and his ankles. He's, ba- he's bound to other Roman guards, and he's sitting there writing this letter. And that should provide a really strong contrast for, these, for the supreme message of joy that flows out of this book of Philippians. Paul exudes joy out of this letter, and he's writing it from prison, and we'll, we'll address the, the, his imprisonment in the coming weeks. This letter is addressed to all the saints in, the church, in Christ Jesus in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now, that isn't particularly unusual for Paul to write this, but the language there tells us that he's not just addressing it to a church in general. Like, if he was writing to us, he might have said to life Center Church Caloundra, But he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus. He's got individuals in mind. It's not just to the whole church corporately, but to each individual who makes up this church. No doubt he has Lydia's face in mind and her house in mind. No doubt he has that Philippian jailer in mind. He's got his face in mind, thinking of him as he writes this letter. Their faces cause warm memories to flood into Paul's heart. He's sitting there with Timothy and there's other Christians, there's other believers in that prison with him. And he's sitting there thinking about these beloved Christians, these beloved um, other disciples. And he's thinking to himself, I love them so much. That's where he's writing from. And then in this welcome, he says, grace to you and peace. Those aren't cheap words. Grace and peace only come from God the Father, and they only come at the cost of the Lord Jesus Christ's life. They are not Sometimes we skip over that part, don't we? Grace and peace, yeah, move on. No, grace and peace are not cheap words. If you've been with us for the Romans 5 series that we had for the last few weeks, if you remember verse 1, what does it say? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then he says a little bit later on, we also have grace, access to grace, this grace in which we stand. Grace and peace. This is the cost. Of, this came at the cost of Jesus' life. And this is the, the welcome that Paul gives to the church. We're looking today at verses 3 to 11. And I've split these, these verses, verses into three bite-sized chunks. First of all, we have Paul's thanksgiving. Secondly, we have Paul's affection. And thirdly, we have Paul's prayer. So firstly, Paul's thanksgiving. Paul says to them in verse, from verse 3, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
Now, there's a lot in there, but I want to really hone in on that phrase, partners in the gospel, because of your partnership in the gospel. That seems to be pivotal there. What does it mean to partner in the gospel? Well, the gospel tells us that God loves us, and that's not because we were particularly lovable. It's not because we did something to impress God, and it wasn't because we showed potential to be lovable. It's actually that we were an absolute and utter mess. And God, in his grace and mercy and love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to us to redeem us from the mess that we found ourselves in. And when I say mess, I don't just mean toddler left alone with a bowl of porridge mess. That's messy, but this is so much worse. Our mess is rebellion of the severest kind. Sin is not just making mistakes. Sin is assuming the right to stand before God Almighty and enthrone ourselves. It's to promote ourselves in front of God and say, no, God, I deserve to be king. I deserve to wear that crown. Sin is treason of the highest degree against a holy and just God. And because of God's holiness and because of his perfect, perfect justice, we deserve the full brunt of God's wrath. But instead of sending us his wrath, he instead sent his son. His son came and he took our place and he bore the wrath of God, exchanging our mess for his perfect obedient record. He made a way for us to be reconciled to God and have peace with him, to be adopted into God's family. We get a room in God's house. Our names are written into his will. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that becomes true of us. So to partner then in the gospel, to partner with someone in the gospel, means to say to somebody, wait, you're a mess too? I'm a mess. You're a mess. Hey, do you want to get together and just remind each other of what just terrible messes we are, but what wonderful grace we have in Jesus Christ? That's what it means to partner in the gospel, to share the belief in that gospel message and to experience the joy and camaraderie that comes as a result of that. Think of it like this. Suppose you go to someone's house for dinner, and at one stage you use the bathroom, and while you're in the bathroom, you take the opportunity to have a bit of a look through their medicine cabinet. Now, that's a bit cheeky, and I don't do that, just in case you're worried that if you ever invite me over to dinner, I don't do that, you know, just in case you're worried about that. But let's just say, for example, that that happens, and you go through their medicine cabinet, and because medicine cabinets, they are the great equalizer, aren't they? Like, we can put on a really good facade and a really good mask about how we've got it all together, but then our, our medicine cabinet might say otherwise, and everybody is equal when you look at their medicine cabinets. And so you're looking through the medicine cabinet, and you discover, lo and behold, they have the same rash problem that you do. Oh, amazing. They have that same, they have been treated for that same embarrassing ailment. They, you and them, you both get the same brand worm treatment. It's the best. Like, oh my goodness. And so you come out to the table with the worm treatment in hand saying, you've got worms, I've got worms, we've all got, wow. And there's this camaraderie that we, like, I don't have worms, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Because um, of the tablets. <laughs> Combantron, it's great. Um, <laughs> um, thanks, Gerard. 
but you suddenly have this camaraderie, like you're both sharing in this thing together. Like, wow, we both have this, and we, we now, this embarrassing thing is now in the open, and we can talk freely about it because of the, because of the fact that we both share in this thing together. We're partners together in worms. Um, that's what it's like to partner together in the gospel. It's to say, you're a sinner just like me. You stuffed up just like me. You've put your hope in your own righteousness just like me. And wait, we're both being treated by the same divine physician. That's partnership in the gospel. The, the camaraderie, the, the joy and the love to be shared between two people as a result of that. That's partnership in the gospel. How does that, and that, that binds us together. So how does that bind us together? Paul gives us three things in these verses. We become bound together by our partnership in the gospel through joy for one another, through enduring friendship, and through confidence in God. There's joy for one another in deep, specific, regular, grateful prayer. That's what Paul means by always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. If you ever want to come to the Thursday morning prayer meeting, you'll see what we pray for. You'll see the, the, the faithful brothers and sisters. You'll hear them praying for you with deep, specific, regular, grateful prayers. We are bound together by enduring friendship. He says that this gospel, this gospel partnership was from the first day until now. They had done life together. They had done time together. The, the experience that he had with this Philippian church, it was a deep, enduring friendship. And thirdly, the confidence for each other that God is at work. He says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. To partner with someone in the gospel is to find yourself united to them because of the union that you both share with Jesus Christ and results in joyful prayer, deep friendship, and confidence that God's faithfulness towards one another, God's confidence towards God's faithfulness towards one another. Imagine yourself being united like that to other believers, if you're not already. Imagine yourself having that kind of union with other believers, where you share with one another, where you pray for one another, where you have joy for one another. That's one thing that we could, that we could just do this afternoon as a bit of an how, where to from here. Thank God for the other believers in your church. Go home this afternoon and thank God for the people who came to church with you this morning to worship God together. So that's Paul's thanksgiving. Second point is Paul's affection. We've already begun to, began to uh, scratch the surface of Paul's deep affection for the church, but here it's about to get just a little bit more gooier. Like if you're not comfortable with PDA, public displays of affection, you're not going to you're going to find these verses a little bit uncomfortable because Paul goes deep. He says, Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, on the one hand, what we get in here is a bit of a, 
an opening into Paul's heart. We're getting a bit of the curtains being pulled back and we're seeing in Paul a bit of an example of what it means to have deep affection for other believers. But at the same time, there's an example here for us to follow. To follow Paul in this deep affection for other believers. We are compelled here towards this level of fellowship simply because what Paul shared with the believers in Philippi we each share with one another as well. See, these verses don't just permit deep affection and love for other believers. These verses normalize affection for other believers. And we can see this in at least three ways. Firstly, this fellowship is based on grace. So back in verse 5, Paul said that they were partners in the gospel, but here he says, you're all partners with me in grace. And that word partners is almost identical in both times. However, it's a little bit more, a little bit more concentrated. This, the, the idea of partners in grace gets a little bit of a more concentrated treatment here. A better translation would be partakers of grace. If you have the ESV or the NASB, that's what, that's what they say. The unmerited favor of God is what we're all consuming together. The unmerited grace of God, that's what we are partaking in. The unmerited favor of God. If our diet is grace, then our interactions with one another will be grace. If our input is grace, unmerited favor, then our output will be grace, unmerited favor. God's grace is his unmerited favor to us. It's completely unearned, completely and utterly unmerited. We deserve the opposite of favor with God, but we receive God's favor nonetheless. That's what grace is. And everything that we get from God is of grace. And the more that we think about that, the more that we dwell on that, the more that we let our minds marinate in that, the more likely we're going to be patient with one another the more likely we're going to be long-suffering with one another, the more likely we're going to be slow to anger with one another, quick to forgive, generous, merciful, loving, and generally assuming the best of one another. A community that feeds on grace together is a community that is bound together in love. A church that graces together stays together. We, we take the Lord's grace and we understand that every good gift that we have from God is not because we deserved it, but because God is gracious in his nature and that's what he did for us. And that changes the way that we interact with one another. And this leads us to the second thing, which is just how much these Philippians mean to Paul. He gets really deep here. Twice, he used, twice in this passage, he utilizes... Uh, the psychological meaning, meaning attached to certain organs of the body. He says, I have you in my heart. Now we know what that means, right? Like at the very center of his being, that's where the Philippian church reside for him. They are a priority for him. They mean a lot to him. His feelings are stirred up by this church. He also says, and I miss you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And that word that is translated affection is literally the word bowels. Like deep down inside of who I am, the very depths down in my guts, I miss you deeply. It's like he's saying, I'm sick with longing for you. That's how much you mean to me. It's really graphic language that he uses, that he uses here. And this should challenge us in the way that we think about each other. 
There's a bit of a tendency to regard church as this kind of one-stop shop or maybe not even that, but just like a bit of a drive through We come in, we sit in church, we enjoy the sermon or don't, we enjoy the worship, um, we you know, have a good time, exchange some pleasantries with some other believers, share a cup of coffee, oh, still Arnott's biscuits again, okay, that's great. And then you kind of just continue, then you go home and, and that's kind of it. But what Paul actually has here is totally different. Please know that our vision for what fellowship and community looks like here in this church goes so much deeper than that. Our vision is that we would be a people who truly love with one another and go deep with one another. This is why we have life groups, and this is why we invite you to life groups all the time, because we know that there's only so far we can get with other believers on a Sunday to really open up and be vulnerable and share our fears and our doubts and failings with one another, that's, where, that's what life groups are about. To get together and actually say, hey, I'm struggling this week in my relationship with God. I've been doubting the goodness of God. I've actually been struggling in this area. I've been a coward when it's come to sharing the gospel with my unbelieving friends. I've been struggling with this area of sin. And we can then, after that, then remedy that with grace and say, God loves you. We love you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to be here for you. And we're going to ask you questions next week and see how you went this past week. We love you. That's that's, what, that, that's where this kind of community and affection grows. That's the difference between sitting next to someone at church and having deep affection for them. We ought to have deep, grace-filled, prayer-saturated, vulnerable and loving affection for one another. That is perfectly within the scope of Christian friendship. It is... It is grace that we share, and it is the gospel that we, that we are partners in. That's what binds us together, and that can't be taken away from us. The reason why we gather together as a church is not because we all agree on certain political issues. It's not because we're all of the same demographic, because we're not. It's not because we all have, a, have the same special interests. It's because of the gospel. That's what unites us together. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what unites us together as a church. And that means that we love one another. It means we go deep with one another. We're patient with one another. There is this lie that often gets perpetuated, and I've said this before. There is this lie that says, you know, you have to love one another, but that, that doesn't mean you have to like one another. That's a load of rubbish. That is a load of rubbish, and that does not belong in this church. Because we are to love one another in the way that Christ loves us and Christ likes us. Christ is patient with us. Christ is long-suffering with us. Christ is generous towards us. Christ is merciful towards us. That's how we love one another. That's, that's the, the motivation for that deep affection. And then that leads into the third thing, which is the shared mission together. Paul says, You're all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Those words, defense and confirmation, just simply talk about Paul's ministry. The confirmation of the gospel, uh, it is bringing the gospel to bear and, and saying this is trustworthy, we can trust in this, and then defending the gospel where it needs it as well. And he's talking here about the fact that these, these Philippians have shared in Paul's gospel ministry. They have resourced him. They have prayed for him. They have provided for his needs. They have rejoiced with him when it's time for it. They have weeped with him when it's time for it. When things go bad, even to the degree that Paul is thrown in prison, they are with him together. 
And guys, we are on mission together. We, we, want to, we want to increasingly be on mission together. We want to increasingly be sending missionaries out, whether that's to the Philippines or whether that's the other side of the world or whether that's to Beringa or to Budrum or to Landsborough, wherever it is that you live. We are on mission together, bringing the gospel to, to unsaved people around us, bringing the gospel to our unsaved friends, our unsaved relatives, the people who live in our street, bringing the gospel to that. And we are on that mission together, and there is no better way for you to spend your life than to be building God's kingdom by making disciples with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing together. And as we unite together in that, we'll, we'll, we'll know that, that forge deeper relationship to go deeper. This is why we, we regularly pray for other churches because we know that we, we, we love them. We love the fact that God's doing that. It also is why we pray for people like Nikki and Maria and Anna and Nadia and Renya as they go into schools and teach RI in schools. It's why we pray for school chaplains. It's why we pray for other ministries that are happening, whether that's through compassion or just other things that are happening around the globe. We pray for these people because we know they, they are partners with us in the gospel. Go deeper with one another in your hearts and in the grace of Jesus Christ. Spend time with other believers from church. Have them over to your house. Have them over to, for a meal. Share life together. Watch the footy together. And here's a hint. Don't just do it with somebody who matches you. Like if you're a couple, invite a, someone who's single over. If you're a single person, invite a family over. If you're in your 20s, invite someone in their 80s over. If you're in your 70s, invite someone who's in their 30s over. Have somebody, have them in your life, share life together because it's not your age, it's not your politics, it's not the things that you're interested in that unite you together. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Watch the footy together, drink coffee together, climb mountains together, go surfing together, and especially. Read the Bible together. Pray for one another. Encourage one another on mission. Confess sin to one another. Be vulnerable with one another. Apply the gospel of grace to one another. Bear one another's burdens and encourage one another as you contend for one another in the faith. That's what we're called to do. So we've seen Paul's thanksgiving, Paul's affection, and now we get actually to the content of Paul's prayer. He said earlier that he's been praying with them all the time, and now he tells the Philippian church exactly what he's been praying about. He says, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And Paul talks here about love growing more and more, he doesn't give an object to this love. Like he doesn't say, I pray that your love for God would grow more and more. Or he doesn't say, I pray that your love for others would grow more and more. He just simply says, I pray that your love will grow more and more. Bubbling over, spilling up, spilling the banks kind of love. But even though this love isn't necessarily given a direction here, it certainly is given a shape. And this shape is something that we might not expect. The shape of this growing love, says Paul, is that your love will keep growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. That's a bit strange. The knowledge there is the knowledge of God and his word, 
And the discernment is the capacity to choose between right and wrong. What he's suggesting here is that the knowledge of God, discerning between what is right and wrong, that personal growth and maturity in faith, that is the way that love grows. He goes further to say, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. He's talking here about sanctification, that we grow in our discernment of what we allow into our lives and what we don't. There are certain things that are good for our faith, whether that's TV shows or movies or the books we read or the the news articles that we read or whatever we do on our phones and and all the various stuff of life, the, the things we eat, the things we consume, the people we hang out with, the things that we possess in our mind. There are things that are good for our faith and there are also things that are not good for our faith. Some things will stir up the affections of our heart and other things are like throwing a bucket of water onto a fire. And the shape that Paul gives to love is that our knowledge of God's word and our discernment for what is right and wrong and our faith in God and our capacity to resist temptation as these things increases, as we become more and more selfless and generous and more and more satisfied with God, that's how our love grows. In personal maturity, growing in our faith, growing to be more and more like Christ. To the degree that when Christ returns, we'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That means we do righteous things where our lives exude righteousness. That the righteousness that we have in God, the fact that we've been declared righteous by God through our faith in Jesus Christ, that comes out in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we drive our car, in the way that we speak to our neighbors, in the way that we manage our funds and our taxes and our money. All those things, that comes out, that we live righteous lives. And Paul isn't saying that on the day of Jesus Christ that we might have one or two pieces of fruit. He's saying we'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Imagine an apple tree filled with fruit. That's what he's talking about on the day of Jesus Christ. Let me put it to you this way. I find it helpful to think of love like this. To love somebody is to want the best, seek the best, and be the best for another person, regardless of the personal cost. That is... You want the best. You want blessing for them. You want good things to happen for them. That's because you love them. And and then more than that, deeper than that, bigger than that, you seek the best. So you want the best, but now you seek the best. That is, you go after the good stuff for them. You you do whatever you can to, to make sure that their lives are filled with blessing. And so you want the best, and then you seek the best. But ultimately, the, the greatest form of love is to be the best for another person, regardless of the personal cost. That is, we ourselves are willing to change. We want to grow. We want to become more and more like Jesus Christ. We want to demonstrate God's love to them. We want to be the blessing to them. We want our lives to be transformed and to grow because of Jesus Christ. That there... That That's the tear that Paul is talking about there. That kind of love is incredibly costly and it's incredibly offensive in our current cultural climate. Our world says right now, this is how you should live. This is who I am and you should accept me. The love Paul talks about here, though, is totally self-denying. It says, I'm going to change. I'm going to grow. I'm going to mature. I'm going to get better. I'm going to mature in my faith. I'm, going, I'm not going to persist in my sin anymore. I'm going to grow. Why? 
Because that's the greatest demonstration of love. Let me put it to you like this. The greatest way you could love somebody is by becoming more and more like Jesus. The greatest way you could show love to your brothers and sisters is by becoming more and more like Jesus. This is why Jesus says in John 13, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The depth of love and affection that Paul demonstrates and examples to us here is the kind of love that gives me the incredible hope of what the church could become. It's love that grows from partnering with other believers in the gospel. It's, it's love that says, I'm going to love you because God loves me. I'm not going to wait until you're more lovable. I'm not going to wait until I'm feeling like loving you on that day. I'm not going to wait until you come around to my particular point of view on this particular political issue or until we share the same kind of life experience. I'm going to love you because God loves me. I'm not going to wait for you to love me first. God has already loved me first. That's why I'm going to love you. I've already been loved by God in the gospel, and that is why I am now loving you. And friends, it's this kind of fellowship, it's this kind of community that our world both wants and craves. We live in a world that prizes strength, that prizes having it all together. And if you screw up, there's no second chances. But the church, we prize weakness because it's, it's, it's in our weakness that we come to the gospel. We, ha- we prize having nothing together because it's Jesus who puts us together. And, our, and the church is marked by second and third and fourth and onwards chances because that's what we have in Jesus Christ. And this is, this is the point, is that all of this comes, as he says here, through Jesus Christ. In fact, over and over, Paul, again, Paul has said this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And now here, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. How do we love one another? How do we grow together in affection for Jesus? We come to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We put our trust in him. And we believe in the gospel. And we are saved by the gospel as that Philippian jailer was saved. We are saved by, the, by Jesus Christ through the gospel as Lydia was saved. And we find ourselves united to other believers, all for the glory of God. All so that we can point towards God and say, God, you are great. God, you are mighty. And you are the reason why we have this community together. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.